I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. Sometimes I think I have a good idea, but it's not a good idea. I was teaching Farley Mowat's Never Cry Wolf to an English 10 class high school sophomores, and in the book, Farley Mowat is given the task of observing the wolf-caribou relationship in Canada in the Arctic. Mowat goes out, stakes his tent near a wolf den, pees in a big circle all night long, drinking tea and peeing and drinking tea and peeing to stake out his territory so the wolves will leave him alone. The wolves come up, mark their opposing territory, and never come inside his circle. So for the next few weeks, he watches the wolves in total safety. And what's interesting is that they kill zero caribou. Instead, Farley Mowat discovers that they eat fish, sculpins, that they eat arctic hares, and that they often, sometimes even for weeks at a time, eat only field mice. So he realizes that wolves are more likely to eat hare, fish, or mice than caribou because of the abundance of the first three food sources. So Farley Mowat gets an idea. He thinks, I'll try eating only mice for a few weeks and see if I do well. So he eats what the wolves eat. He captures field mice and he eats those. He even comes up with a funny recipe and writes it in the book called Mice with Cream. Sorry a la creme. So as my students are reading this, they're kind of grossed out, and I'm laughing, and I tell the whole class, all high school sophomores, if any of you want to eat mice for a while and make a video of it, I'll give you extra credit. Seemed like a good idea. Everyone groaned and was grossed out and booed. But then a week later, a high school sophomore named Keenan comes into class and he has a DVD. He says, this is the video of me eating mice. I was like, okay. So everybody in the class is so excited. I slide the DVD into the player, turn it on. We watch Keenan's video. And in the video, he and his uncle, who's a hunter and is knowledgeable about harvesting animals, they go to a pet store and they get Reptile food, live food for snakes. And on the little enclosure, it says not for human consumption. And the video zooms in. And they take these two mice home. And the uncle shows them how to ethically kill the mice, skin them, cook them. He he goes through all the whole process that they would if it was a larger animal that they'd hunted. And they make the cereal creme recipe. And then Keenan and his uncle eat the mice. So the whole class cheers. I say, Keenan's earning an A on this unit, you know. And I think it's over. But then a few days later, two high school sophomores come in class, and they also have a DVD. And I stop the class, and I'm like, we have another extra credit mouse-eating assignment. And everybody's so excited. They loved Keenan's. So I put in the DVD, and it starts in a garage somewhere. 
And these two boys each have a mouse in their hands. And they're screaming and swearing. And there's heavy metal music playing. And then they pull out box knives and they pin the mice on top of this metal table in a garage. And then they, as they're cussing and screaming and the music is playing, they kill the mice with box knives, cut off their heads. And then they're screaming even more and they're freaking out. One of them's kind of running in a circle. And then they get a roll of paper towels and a lighter. And they pile paper towels on top of this metal table. And then they put the two dead mice with the skin and tails on, on top of the paper towels. And then they light the paper towels on fire. And the paper towels burn really quickly and just kind of singe the hair on the mice. And then the boys are screaming some more and they cut off the tails. And then they light some more paper towels and put the kind of outer singed raw mice on top of the paper towel fire again. And then as the heavy metal music is playing and they're both cussing and screaming, each of them pick up a singed mouse body and they pop it in their mouths and they chew the raw mice bones and all and just kind of quickly gulp them down. And then they're screaming at each other and swearing a little bit more. And then the DVD ends. And the class was absolutely horrified. And I learned a good lesson. If you say something crazy to a group of high school sophomores, they'll call your bluff. Another idea is our relationship to cars. How cultural it is. For example, I was driving with my friend and he lived in Japan until a few years ago. And he said, you know, horns in Japan speak a different language. I said, wait, what? And he said, for example, in the United States, when you press on your car horn, you're saying, get out of my way, or I'm mad, or hey, you're a idiot, or what the hell was that? But he said in Japan, everybody double taps their horns. And it goes, beep, 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 beep. And everybody knows what the car's saying. What the car's saying in Japan is, thank you, thank you, thank you. Another thing with cars, people always talk about how the French walk so much how the French are healthier than the United States citizens. And when we lived in Montpellier in the south of France, when I was a kid, I noticed something. That everybody walks to the market, everybody walks to the supermarket. La supermarché. And it's not because everybody's healthier. It's not because everybody's like, nah, I'm not going to drive. It's because, at least in the many places I've been in France, The markets and the supermarkets don't have a parking lot. You can't just drive there and everybody else drives there because there's no parking lot. In the United States, you want to go to, you know, Safeway or Albertsons or Sam's or wherever. 
You go, you drive there, you park in the closest spot to the front doors, and you go in. In France, there's no parking lot at the supermarket. There's no place to put all those cars. In the United States, we build the parking lot before we build the supermarket. In the United States, we build the mini mall after we've established an enormous parking lot. In the United States, we build parking garages before we build the apartment buildings. We set it up so there's parking infrastructure. And therefore, we set it up for ease of parking and everybody drives. My little family and I, we lived in Costa Rica for February and March of 2014 while I finished my second novel. And when we went to Costa Rica, we thought we would rent a car and then we would live in this tiny village, but we would access, have access to the whole Nicoya Peninsula via the car. But in San Jose, in the capital, when we went to the car rental place where everything was set up, we realized we'd taken the wrong credit card, the kind that they didn't take. So we couldn't rent a car that night. And then we took a um, bus, kind of a private car bus, taxi thing, it was a combo, over to the coast from San Jose. And we got to the tiny village. We still didn't rent a car. Instead, we paid $15 to rent bikes for weeks from a little lady who owned a pedal bike store. Basically a rental center for anybody, anybody in the town. And then we biked. And we discovered that in our tiny town, nobody owned a car. There were two young men who owned motorcycles and they used those to go over the mountain so they could go surf a different break. But that's it. No cars in our village. So we biked around for all of February and all of March. And it was a weird blessing in the end that we couldn't get a car in San Jose. We realized that we got to know more people. We got to explore more locally. We got to walk and bike and live slower. And the way of life in this village was so beautiful. Nobody went to school for more than four hours a day, 10.30 to 2.30. Nobody worked very much. Nobody needed to. There were so many foods growing on the hillsides in that jungle. There was cashew fruit, and there were coconuts, and there were plantains everywhere that you could eat in different forms or fry. In the evening, the women cast the cast nets to catch small fish, and then the men used the small fish as bait to catch big fish, and everyone ate ceviche with limes and tomatoes and onions that grew right there, chopped up in a Coleman cooler. So this way of life was so slow-paced, and we idealized it. We are thinking, why can't we live like this? But then one night, I went to a fisherman's party. He invited me. And during the party, he walked me into his bedroom, and he asked me if I would help him with his English work. And he had a workbook, Spanish to English, English to Spanish. So I went over his work and helped him. 
And then from that point on, I would help him with his English work. And then his tios would come in sometimes, and they would ask for help with their English work. And I said, you live here. Why do, why do you want to learn English? And they said, we all want to go to the United States. And I was like, really? It's pretty great here, you know? I was like, no. We have a cousin who lives in Atlanta. Have you ever been to Atlanta? And I have been to Atlanta. And I wanted to say to these three men, Atlanta sucks. You're going to go to Atlanta and you're going to work some crappy urban job and you're never going to surf the ocean because there's no ocean nearby. You're not going to play barefoot soccer in the evening. You're not going to hang out with your families every day. You're not going to work four hours a day. You're not going to eat fresh ceviche each evening with very, very little money going towards black beans and rice. None of that is going to happen. But they were so excited. They said, in Atlanta, there's McDonald's everywhere. Just because I think something's funny doesn't mean it's funny. I guess I have a weird sense of humor. Or, as my sister says, uh, kind of a mean sense of humor. Sometimes I'm the only person in on the joke, so it's just me laughing to myself. For example, this is a joke I love to play. If I'm in New York City for a book event, somewhere like right in the middle of Manhattan, for example, if I'm at the New York Public Library, which is on 42nd Street, like 5th Avenue, right in the middle of Manhattan, between the Empire State Building and St. Patrick's Cathedral. So if I'm there, I like to see like the discrepancy between the tourists and visitors like me and the New Yorkers. You know, because tourists and visitors, we kind of stop and look up and you know, we're always staring and getting in people's way. And the New Yorkers, they're just like head down, going hard, right? So when I'm in the middle of Manhattan, I like to stop one of those busy New Yorkers. You know, somebody with his headphones in and his head down and he's just charging along. I like to say, hey, can, can you help me? And he'll stop, take out a headphone, an earbud. And I'll say, um, <clears throat> can you help me get to Manhattan? And he'll look at me. Like I'm an idiot. And he'll say, this is Manhattan. And I'll say, where? And he's like, you're in Manhattan right now. And I'll be like, but wait, where's Manhattan? He's like, you're standing in it. You're in the middle of Manhattan. I'll be like, oh, oh, okay. So this is Manhattan. And he'll say, yeah, obviously. And then he'll put back in his earbud and keep walking. I don't know why, I just, I love to do that. And the thing is, it works in any city in the world. For example, if I'm in Paris, maybe near the Eiffel Tower, I can stop a Parisian on the street and say, you know, excusez-moi, aidez-moi, s'il vous plaît. They'll stop, you know, and I'll say, Où se trouve Paris? 
Where's Paris? How do you find Paris? And they'll just look at me like I'm an idiot. And I think that's super funny. Sometimes one of my ideas works out, but it's still not a great idea. I was teaching a junior and senior speech class at South Eugene High School. The class was named Oral Communications, an unfortunate name, but a name made up by old people. So I'm teaching Oral Communications, and I have this boy in class who's good at everything. He's a first-team all-state wide receiver, recruited by over 200 colleges. He ended up signing with Oregon, a top 10 program nationally. But the thing was, he wasn't just good at football. He was good looking. Uh, He was charming. He was intelligent. He was good at every speech we gave in this class. And even in his secondary sport, basketball, a sport that he didn't even work at, he was first team all state as a wing shooter. So this kid, his name is Matt. He was a dominant high school student, dominating in everything. And I'm teaching the class, and my brother is semi-famous. My brother, Coop Hoffmeister, was a professional snowboarder. And a lot of the kids in the class knew this and had seen some pro snowboarding videos with my brother in them. My brother is always getting really good pro model gear from Dekine and 323 and Never Summer. So one day in class, I'm wearing this swaggy fleece. It's tan. It's brand new. My brother just was given too much gear that winter. So I'm wearing this nice pro model fleece. And Matt raises his hand and he's like, where'd you get that? I'm not a great dresser. So it stood out that I was wearing something really nice and brand new. You know, I tell him I got it from my brother and everybody's like, ooh, the fleece is nice. So after class, Matt comes up. And uh, along with sports, he liked to gamble. I heard he liked to play cards. I don't know. Never hung out with him on the weekends. But he was like, what if we make a bet? And if I win the bet, I get that fleece. And I was like, well, what if I win? He was like, I I don't know. What do you want? And I said, hmm, how about if I win, I get to write a speech for you. You have to get up in front of the class, not giving them any context at all. Don't tell them about the bet. And you just deliver the speech saying whatever I write. He's like, all right, all right. What do you want to bet? And the thing is, I'm not very tall. I'm under 5'6". Just a little bit under 5'6". And I knew Matt was a really good athlete and prided himself on being a dominant athlete. So I said, what if I beat you in basketball one-on-one? And Matt kind of giggled and looked at me. He's 6'4". And he's like, 
you beat me in one on one. And I was like, yeah. And and uh, so if I beat you in one on one basketball, then you deliver the speech. If you beat me, you get the fleece. He's like, that's a bet. Holds out his hand and we shake on it. So we decide to play one on one at lunch. Now here's the thing. I'm not a great basketball player, but if you go to boarding and reform school, you get tons of open gym time. And at my school in Tennessee, we had military deans who would take us on hardening exercises, which were not fun. Or we could play open gym basketball or we could lift weights. So I played a ton of basketball. My best friend was the starting point guard on the varsity team. And the varsity team was ridiculously good. So I'd play with Chris all the time and he taught me everything he knew. Now I'm not saying I'm a great point guard. But I'm alright. And I have quick feet from college wrestling. So I have quick feet. I can kind of play defense. I know a lot of old man moves, a lot of short man moves, a little bit of handle. So I knew I wasn't as good a basketball player as Matt, but what I was counting on was that he would be arrogant. He'd be overconfident. So I said, okay, look, we're going to play to three by ones. I made that score really low. This is what I was hoping for was that he wouldn't try very hard. And especially if his friends were watching. So we go to the gym at lunch and he's got a bunch of friends there, which is a good thing for me. Because a 6'4", all-state, first-team basketball player can't play hard or try hard against a short little teacher, right? So we shoot free throws for who gets to go first. We both make them. Then we shoot again, and we both make them. We shoot again, and I make, and he misses. So I get the ball first. He kind of looks over at his friends and laughs, like, what is this teacher doing? He doesn't know that I went to reform school. He doesn't know that I played a million hours of basketball. So what I do is I do an old man game trick, which is I dribble to the right, kind of pounding the rock like I'm only right-handed. And then when he sets up D right, I dribble through his legs, and I go in and make a lay-in left. So I get one point. Everybody on the sidelines like, ooh, 1-0 teacher. And then what I do is I just pray that I make it, and before he gets up on me on defense, I shoot an outside shot. And miraculously, I hit it because I'm not that great a shooter. So it's 2-0. Now all I have to do is score one more point. But now I know I've got his attention. So I try going into the mid-range, pull up early so he thinks he's going to block my shot, and I shoot, but I miss. He gets the rebound, takes it outside, pulls up, hits a shot, 2-1. He gets the ball back, winner takes. He drives into the mid-range, pulls up, easily shoots over the top of me, 2-2. So now it's a game to one. 
So I'm like, man, I hope he shoots a really, really far outside shot. And he looks over at his friends, and that's exactly what he's thinking. So he pulls up way outside, clanks it. I get the rebound, take it outside. Now I know he's going to guard me hard. So I go right, he guards me. I go left, he guards me. I go into the mid-range, but he thinks he's, that I'm either going to go for a layup or I'm going to pull up in the mid-range. Instead, I shoot a quick baby hook so he's not able to block it, and it goes in. I win the game. Luck, I know, but I win the game. So I write a speech for Matt. And on the next Monday, he gets up in front of the class and he tells about how it feels when he takes a bath by himself at night. And he describes being in that bathtub naked and feeling so awkward and feeling so lonely. And the class is looking at me and looking at him like, what are we listening to? As a novelist, you start from scratch. You have a blank page, a blank document, and you try to build a world, a world that works for the reader. That's what I try to do. And I'm a literary writer, so I try to write a realistic world that works for the reader. So that's what I did, and this is the part where you laugh. My novel that released in 2016, I set it in my hometown, and I put it in a place that actually exists, and I took characters from my own life and events that had happened to me and other people around me, and I tried to build a world, but that doesn't mean that it worked. In fact, sometimes as a writer, you just completely fail, or you fail specific readers. On Goodreads, a reader named Jawaria wrote, What the? What did I just read? Did that seriously just happen? Did they kill off one of the main characters to make the story more tragic than it already is? Ugh, I'm not understanding the reviews that this book has. Some people are saying it's beautiful, and the whole class read it for a project, but this is just sad and depressing as hell. I don't think this is quite realistic in some ways. The way his mom was a drug addict and living on the streets, the grandparents that are messed up in the head, the girl he falls for, and the friend that dies, all happening to a high school sophomore. I don't think the author really understands how the mind of a high schooler works. I know that Travis's character most definitely does not fit with the 15-year-old boys. This is weird and so, so depressing. What's the other possibility? I don't try anything. That way I'm guaranteed not to fail. Last night, I went down to the river and tried to catch cutthroat on a barbless dry fly. I hooked five fish and I caught zero. I lost all five. I couldn't bring any of them in. The fish were going crazy and biting all over, but I couldn't catch them. And last week, I worked on my rock climbing project at the Columns. A route that's super hard for me. I tried and tried and tried to send it without a fall, but all I kept doing was falling. 
Then I hung out with a couple of friends and I got sick. And then while I was sick, I tried reading the National Book Award winning novel from 1974. But not only was it not good, it was in fact racist and made me really, really uncomfortable. This morning I wrote a poem and then I revised the poem and then I revised it again and then I left it, drank a cup of coffee, came back to it and revised it again. And it's just not good. It's not good at all. The poem sucks. But what's the other option? You don't try things. You don't challenge yourself. You don't test out your ideas. Or worse, you don't have any ideas to begin with. My wife and daughters say I read books that are a little too dark. Most of the time I laugh and say, no, I don't. But then again, this week I've been reading a book titled Darkness Sticks to Everything, a collection of poems by Tom Hennon. And Darkness Sticks to Everything is a pretty dark title, so maybe I see what they're saying. In that collection, last night, In a hammock by the river, I read a poem titled Animal of the Earth. And that poem had an idea that I've been thinking about a lot lately. It was one of those moments where you read a poem and relate completely. So I'm going to read that aloud here. Animal of the Earth by Tom Hennon. For the first time, I understand I'm an animal too. Bones. Warm breath, moving shaggy arms to encircle another, looked at by beasts that fly, walk with four feet down, crawl on tiny scales that shine with flecks of spring. I'm the only animal that wants to write a book that moves so uncertainly through the cold that spends so much time gazing at the sky and listening for itself among the rustling sounds. Biking to the river two nights ago to fly fish, I discovered a four and a half foot gopher snake stretched all the way across the dirt path by the riverbank. I had to push my bike through the ivy on the right side around the snake because his body was stretched all the way across and his tail was disappearing into the ivy on the other side. So really, I guessed, he could have been five feet long. Huge old gopher snake. He didn't even flinch. He just pulled his head back a little bit, slowly flicked his tongue at me. So I stopped and talked to him before I stepped over him and because we had a good conversation me and the gopher snake this episode 23 is dedicated to mr gopher snake who some people call mr bull snake it's a new school year new ideas new people new classes don't be boring look for something interesting this year find something awesome
If you have a moment, please subscribe to this podcast or give it a five-star review or tell somebody else about it. And thank you today for listening to the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. And my